Jesus' way. Um, and it's not just actions, but it's the way he thinks that informs the way that he behaves. And I just, I love being around him. So get time. Get time and space with this person. He's really good. Um, but here he is, our friend, Ken Lloyd. Give it up. Woo! Thank you. Um, <clears throat> okay, um, a little bit frazzled this morning. We spent three days with some luminaries from um, Parish Collective. Awesome, wonderful people. Um, and I, I'm glad that we got to hang out with them. So this is about connection this week. That's probably the focal point of everything that I do and think is connection. I want to touch people, and I want to be touched by people. Whether it's, whether it's luminaries from uh, Parish Collective coming down from Tacoma and Seattle, whether it's uh, the guy that stands out front of, of the uh, coffee shop, uh, what is that, Stumptown coffee shop over here, and sells street roads. I want to know him. I want to know about him. As it turns out, here's a guy who searched for 35 years for his brother, to no avail, and finally he found him, and he's selling street roots here in Portland, uh, right up on the corner, and the interesting thing about it is, is that he has decided to take his brother to Hawaii, and his brother can't afford it, so on his, the money that he makes from selling street roots, he's gonna take himself and his brother on uh, November 1st, they'll be flying out to Hawaii. Isn't that amazing? Uh, so I get to connect with this guy. Every time I walk by then, I talk to Norman and Norman talks to me. I'm not sure that he knows my name, uh, but I know his name and I know some of his story, a lot of his story. And every time I encounter him, I get to know more of his story because it really matters to me that I would touch him and that, that there'd be a bond between us. So this is about a journey of broken hearts in search of each other, and I'll talk about that in a, in a minute. Uh, it takes time, this journey. You're, you're brand new in this building. You've been here five weeks? Something like that. Uh, it's going to take a long time for the neighborhood to know you and for you to know the neighborhood. Uh, and just take your time. You know, we live in a fast-paced world. I go, to, I go to McDonald's, and I have to stand in line, and I have to wait up to 30 seconds before I get my, uh, my uh, hamburger or whatever it is that I want, and I'm pissed if it's 31 seconds. I don't have time for this, and I'm paying good money. I'm paying like a dollar for this hamburger. <laughs> uh, and so, but there's something about us, there's something about me. As I get older, I drive slower. Uh, the rest of the city, doesn't seem to be aging in the same way that I am aging. And so they're pissed at me. Um, so let's continue on. Oh, by the way, the information age came and went, and it was a failure. We're not smarter, we're not better, we're not happier because of the information age. And as it fades away, the information will keep going and doubling every, what, nine seconds now. It was every 2,000 years or 10,000 years. Uh, but all the sum total of human knowledge doubles every, 
what is it, a week or every few minutes, something like that. But it doesn't make us happier because without connection, it's impossible to be happy. So uh, I spent a lot of time uh, uh, on the streets uh, of downtown Portland hanging out with beautiful people. I mean, absolutely gorgeous people. Here's a picture of some of the gorgeous people. We do mostly nothing special all of the time, relentlessly, without help, without let up. Uh, and that is so critically important. Um, less is more. I like the re relationality of this church. You folks are so kind to each other. You pay attention to each other. You know each other. You're growing slowly enough that people don't get lost uh, in the mix. So, doing mostly nothing special, how hard is that? Well, thinking about it, it's really hard. You see, we're a culture that does things. Being is not something that we do really well. What we do really well is doing. So then, um, if we want to have a gathering together, then we have to ha had, uh, have additional add-ons to whatever we whatever the being part of it is. And then we cut our meetings up into, and I'm talking about some meetings that I've been to recently, cut, it, cut up into 15-minute segments. Well, 15-minute segments are not really relational. Um, and so that's kind of, uh, we need to add value. Uh, we need to add information. That's part of our Western culture. We need to conquer the people that we're with. Now, the, one of the beauties of this place is if you were spending a lot of time here, you'd eventually learn who the leaders were, but um, it's not obvious. There are no strutting people. There are no people who are um, so obviously the leader is the boss, uh, and that's really wonderful. Everybody needs a soft ent entry point. Everybody needs a, uh, something comfortable uh, for them to, uh, in order to become part of a community. Now, these are some of the soft entry points that, uh, that I have discovered in my hanging out with, with people who live on the streets of Portland, my friends who live outdoors. The eyebrow flash is the biggest one. When you, when you meet somebody, encounter somebody again that you know, that you love, that you care about, your eyes automatically raise, just momentarily. If you're blind, you do that also. It's amazing. Something about us, and what it does is it opens up our face, which opens our heart, which makes it possible for us to connect with another person. Now, the science of it is, um, uh, mirror neurons and mirror neurons are neurons that are within our brain that when we see that open face and open heart we begin to respond in the same way and eventually what happens or actually quickly if you know each other is that we mirror each other we actually begin to move together as we're talking it's an amazing process that all human beings do it does, the most uh, the most sophisticated uh, person 
and the person who lives in a simpler society do it the same. It's just part of our being. Um, it's not so hard to find uh, a, uh, a soft entry point into a, a new culture. By the way, you're in a new culture here. Belmont is completely different than Hawthorne, which is completely different than the North Portland that I live in, which is completely different than every neighborhood in this city. Some neighborhoods are genuinely friendly. Uh, Belmont seems to be one of those neighborhoods. Other neighborhoods, uh, less so. Um, and so we need to find those, uh, the way to get into this culture, to get in with the people, not, not get into this culture as a thing, but get, find ourselves in a, in a relational place with the people. Uh, so one of the things that I used in downtown Portland to uh, work my way into the hearts of the people were cigarettes. Now, I, I remember uh, many people from the church world that I had come from uh, were saying, that is so unhealthy. Let me tell you, living on the streets of downtown Portland is really unhealthy. Nothing compared to, uh, to smoking a cigarette from time to time. So we uh, bought a carton of cigarettes a week. Every time I went to Portland, I had a pack of cigarettes in my pocket. Uh, food. I noticed that you have food. I noticed that the food is gone. <laughs> That's heartbreaking. <laughs> Um, laughter and tears. My friend uh, Taylor, Tyler, excuse me, um, she had a lot of tears in her life. And so every time I met her, I sat with her and I shared her tears. And about two months ago, um, she lived outdoors and, she, and her uh, camp was, was maybe a mile away from any possible transportation. She had a seizure and she died. But you know something, um, her and I, for a while on this planet, touched each other in tears. I mean, hey, um, I'm gonna see her again. There's this place that is in heaven for guys like me. And this place is dirty and raggedy and it's, uh, newspapers blow around in, in whirlwinds, kind of darkish. The buildings are crummy. Uh, the buildings are f falling down. And when I land there on one of those corners, kitty corner to me is a group of people that I've known all my life. A group of people that I've known from the street. People I've known from here. Uh, and they will beckon me over, say, come on, Ken be with us. That's what I see. Now, heaven also, we know, is a grand thing, bowing and, and angels and gold and jewels and all of that stuff. I, I, I believe in that. But I also believe that in that crowd of people that I've known and cared for and that, I've, that, I, uh, that preceded me in death, there's another guy there too. And I notice him eventually, not right away, but eventually, and his name is Jesus. And that's what I have in my mind. Now, that's my theology. That's the best I can do theologically. 
So our soft entry point has to be soft to them. In other words, here, I wanted you to have this. We had two grandparents in our family. One of the grandparents said, here, I wanted, to have you, uh, wanted you to have this to the grandkids. Um, and uh, my, so my son, 12-year-old artist, was given a book on the Constitution of the United States of America. Um, didn't really work out too well. My mom said to me, what do your kids want? What would be the best thing I could possibly give them? And every Christmas, every birthday, every occasion, um, my mom hit it right the nail on the head because she was, she was asking, what do they want? What do they need? What do they care about? Uh, we get to do that in this neighborhood. Everybody has an inner dialogue. My name is Stop That. So, so we had, we had this, uh, we had this uh, assignment. I'm, we're doing a class with the parish collective. We had this assignment called uh, a story of leadership tragedy. Well, I told, uh, uh, I wrote a story about my dad, and I, and uh, and the name that that I got from my dad was disappointment. Ken, you are a disappointment to me. So I wrote the story because I know the story. I remember the story. I tell the story. I'm fine. Okay. I, everything is great. But when I wrote the story down, it completely unstrung me. I wasn't a deer in the headlights. I was the deer that got hit by the headlight right in the heart. And the truck that was connected to the uh, headlights and the, the uh, trailer of uh, scrap steel that was um, behind the truck. And so I landed here in this room, this very room, on, what was it, uh, Thursday night, completely flattened. And there were all these people happy and how you doing and so on like that. How you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm doing. Uh, but it was interesting to me that I have a name. And you have a name. I have several names, and most of them are not good. And, and if you don't know what your name is, just what makes you really angry, really sad, what kind of circumstance, that may have something to do with your name. And so we, are, we live in a world of people who have names. The name on the street in downtown Portland is failure. You are a failure. And so then, what, what do we do as do-gooders and, and so on like that? We name them again. Well, you failed at this, we failed at, you feel, failed at that. Uh, here, let me reach down to you and lift you up to my great height. Um, and w uh, no wonder that we have a difficult time uh, connecting with the people uh, who are different than us and of a lower uh, economic and social status. So I wandered up to this guy, and I, I was doing kind of a poll. What do you want? Because we all know if you ask somebody who live out, lives outdoors, what do you want? The answer is, I want money. Well, the interesting thing is, is I've never, 
that answer has never come up. And I said, what do you want? And he said, ask me my name. So I said, what's your name? And he said, my name is Mike. And the most musical thing you can ever hear is your name said uh, in a good way uh, to you. When, when, somebody, when somebody says, ah, Ken, it's good to see you. When I hear Ken, it's like a musical note that, that heals my soul. It's amazing, it's an amazing process. And so my friend Mike taught me something that is absolutely critical. And tragically, as I get older, the difficulty of remembering names uh, is, some, so some of you that are getting going along uh, in years a bit are nodding your heads because you know what it's like. Okay, but I, I don't have a brain, but I'll show you something that I do have. I have an iPhone. And I go to coffee shops all over Portland, and I know the names of all of the baristas in that coffee shop. Now, I'm going there and buying uh, overly expensive coffee just for their sake, as you well know. Um, what I want to do then is when I walk into that coffee shop, because uh, baristas, people in any serving trade, uh, are not part of the mainstream of America. They are servants to the mainstream of America. So then my job, my, my joyous job, my happy job, is to go into places where servants are and tell them uh, their name once I learn it. And come in the next time uh, and, and have them uh, feel the joy of being known. Uh, at the underground, which is uh, one of the things that we started for people who live outdoors, our friends who live outdoors, uh, a young woman walked in. She was really drunk, which was not a, not a big deal. We didn't care about that kind of stuff. Uh, we cared about people coming and being with us. Um, and I asked her name, and she said, my name is Kelly. And the next week, I was serving ice cream, and Kelly walked in, and I say, said, hi, Kelly and she burst into tears. And I, and I thought, okay, what did I do? Did I, did I, was I arrogant in my demeanor or, or something? And I said, Kelly, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, what did I do? And she said, nobody's ever remembered my name. So we have, it's a simple but not easy. Like I told you, it's simple but not easy. Um, it's about a journey of broken hearts in search of each other. I say that over and over and over again. My heart is so absolutely shattered that some days I can hardly breathe. But you know something? So is yours. And so is everybody else's that you encounter on the street. And the person who is arrogant and nasty and mean and overbearing that's the extent to which their heart is broken, and they need to protect themselves with that kind of uh, manner. We often think we're so different from each other. I always think I have got to be the most screwed up guy I have ever met in my life. Turns out, oh, no, there's lots of people like me. Um, we went to a cowboy wedding. Oh, by the way, everybody, this is my wife, Deborah. 
So Deborah and I got to drive to Montana, Dillon, Montana. Of course, everybody knows where that is. Um, oh, you do? <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a thriving metropolis. So I was the only guy, only male, without a cowboy hat. Everybody else had 10-gallon cowboy hats. Some had 11-gallon cowboy hats. Um, but you know something? As we talked, and because they were very friendly, warm people, as we talked, I discovered that a little guy, a little city boy with soft hands uh, and a big, tall cowboy in an 11-gallon hat had a lot in common. And so we enjoyed each other's company the whole time we were there. And then Deborah and I got to go to a rodeo. We just ran across a rodeo. You know, we have baseball fields, football fields, soccer fields over here. None of that over there. Uh, rodeo rings everywhere. So li <laughs> little girls, probably, uh, I'm thinking seventh grade, because it was junior high. They don't have middle school and high school. They have junior high and high school. In junior high, a little girl uh, riding a horse, racing after a calf, and roping the calf. Um, I can't even imagine that. It was incredible to watch. It was incredible to watch the, the loveliness of the people. The people that uh, were just, they were like us uh, without the baseball field and the football field and the soccer field. They loved their kids and they loved each other. It was wonderful. It was amazing to be there. It was hard to leave. Who do you privilege? We all, pr all privilege somebody. For example, the, uh, yesterday morning there was probably 40 people inside of the, the Stumptown. Uh, well, the Stumptown is small. And the place was absolutely jam-packed. And I saw a young woman who was clearly um, mental issues, but not small mental issues, but large mental issues, lifelong mental issues. Well, you know something? I couldn't tell you what anybody else wore in that place, but I know what she wore. And I heard her voice um, because uh, there's just something about, I privilege people who feel like me. Sorry, but I do. Uh, if you're doing okay, uh, I'll love you, I'll enjoy you, but I'll privilege people who are like me. Donors in a church or a, a nonprofit, visitors, employees, our culture. There's a culture here. It's a very visible culture. It's a very warm, caring culture. Do we, do we privilege that above all other cultures? Do we privilege that above the people coming in the door? Uh, do we privilege the word? Uh, I'm well known in, I'm not very well known in, in Portland, but if you know me, you probably know that I'm considered a heretic uh, in the city just because I have my own thoughts uh, about what God wants us to do and be. Uh, do we privilege the word? Do we privilege, um, who do we privilege? Um, here's, here's, some, uh, here's a situation that will tell you who is uh, being privileged. There's a, uh, near, our, near our house, probably a 15 minute walk from our house, there's a place called Hazelnut Grove. Now Hazelnut Grove is a tiny house community. Now the tiny house community, there is, there's a whole 
range of tiny houses, uh, you can get a really, really nice one for $75,000 and then to put it on a piece of property. Um, but that's not the kind of tiny houses that I'm talking about. I'm talking about tiny houses that are maybe eight by 10 feet, have no insulation, no electricity, um, no running water, um, no heat. Why would they call themselves Hazelnut Grove? And the answer is, we wanted to distance ourselves from being bums. We wanted to distance ourselves from the way people look at us. And we wanted within ourselves to be Hazelnut Grove. And so when you go there, you can almost feel the sun come out on a day like this. You can almost feel the, the beauty of the landscape as a result of them understanding themselves to be Hazelnut Grove. Now, uh, this weekend there is a, uh, an event going on uh, out east of Portland. Uh, and it uh, is, now, by the way, people in Hazelnut Grove built their own houses. They have their, they, uh, the city offered them a bunch of money and all they had to do was do it the way the city wanted them to do it. And they said, no thank you. We would rather be poor than have you come and press down on us. So um, there's another uh, tiny house village out on about 90th and Division, something like that. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Each one of the tiny houses, I believe, has electricity. I think they have running water. It could even be that they have hot and cold running water. It was built for them by a church, a fine church in this city. And the church said, I know what we'll call them. We'll call them Agape Village. By the way, if you're not a Christian, and if you don't have a master's degree in theology, Agape means nothing to you. And that was a really sad thing for me, is that they, instead of, instead of the people naming themselves for who their heart said they were, somebody named them uh, a different name. Uh, that, to me, was a real tragedy. Introduce yourself. Now, uh, typically, uh, if Deborah walks, my wife Deborah walks into a room, within uh, an hour or two, like if, if something is going on, she'll know the name of every person in the room, she'll know their story, and so on like that. After that same length of time, I'll know one person, uh, because that's my capacity. <laughs> um, but introduce yourself. It's hard and easy, both. I think I told you the story of going to a men's breakfast at my church. Are you familiar with that? Oh, good. Uh, I'll tell you then. Um, my church is about 80 or 90% uh, African-American. And uh, I'm obviously not. Um, <laughs> and so uh, there was a men's breakfast. And I thought, OK, I'm going to go to the men's breakfast. I love, I love the folks. I, I love these guys. And I want to be part of their lives. And so at the men's breakfast, uh, number one, uh, two guys talked to me. And the rest of the time, I was my normal self, which is, which is silent and in the corner. Um, 
And I thought, and three months later, because they do it quarterly, so another one is coming up. Three months later, they had another um, men's breakfast. And I thought, I can do this. And when I got in the room, they greeted me. And 10 or 15 men talked to me. Some of them asked me my name. Some of them told me my name. The, the difference is, I'm probably the only white guy that ever came back two times. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm coming, I'm going again because love, caring, demands it. Uh, and besides, I'm, I want to connect. I desperately, desperately, desperately want to connect. So the day after, uh, I said to uh, one of the men in the church, uh, I recognized you yesterday at... Um, at the breakfast, and um, he said, uh, no, that, that could have been my brother. I thought, oh no. The ultimate crime, they all look alike to me. And I'm sitting, and I'm standing there just staggered, and he said, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and his humor said, let's connect. That was awesome. Now here's three practices that are really amazing that have saved my life. My friend Jim Henderson is kind of the originator of these and it's uh, uh, three amazing practices. I will be unusually interested in others. Rather than tell you about myself, I wanna know about you. I will stay in the room with difference. By the way, I live in the liberalist city in the United States of America. Dillon, Montana is not. <laughs> but they were beautiful people. Now I could, I could have withheld myself um, and I could have just said, you know, I don't, I don't want to be around these people because they believe differently than I, than I do. But instead I decided to pay attention to what um, Jim has to say and I stayed in the room with difference. And I will also stop uh, comparing my best with your worst. It would have been so easy to uh, begin to pick apart uh, the culture that I landed in Dillon. Uh, and that would be easy for them to come and uh, pick apart our culture as well. But how about if we met in the middle and just loved each other? I'm hoping that uh, sometime soon within the, the area here, there will be one of these uh, three practice circles coming. Uh, and a three practice circle is teaching us how to connect with each other, how to even express ourselves without uh, any damage. Uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful event. How am I doing? Uh, we're going to have to go around to the neighborhood again and again and again, saying, how, how are we doing here? Uh, and you can't, you won't hurt my feelings, which is total bullshit. Because <laughs> I will be devastated when you tell me I should have done this or I could have done that better. But when I pick myself up off the floor, I'll be a better person because I listened and changed. It's kind of the, you know, the scare yourself to death school of living uh, where you go out and you put your heart right on your sleeve and you allow people to poke at it if they need to. 
uh, when you allow people to correct you, allow people to um, to let their humanity be do, be displayed. Um, I have a, a group of people in downtown Portland in several places uh, where they will tell me, Ken, don't ever say that again. Um, and when they do, I, I feel the joy of not, of having being corrected the first time instead of the 20th time. I had this, I had this really great joke I would tell people. I wanted to prove that we didn't have any rules at the underground, so there were two under, uh, rules at the underground. No violence in the building, no physical violence, and no peeing on the couch. And everybody laughed. Uh, and the next week, when I said it, they didn't laugh so much, but they got enough of a laugh that I felt good in my heart about it. After about three months, Vern came to me and he said, Ken, don't ever say that again. You called us couch peers every week for the last four months. Horrifying. I said, Vern, why didn't you tell me? He said, I did not know how you would react. And so I was afraid to say anything. And I said, Vern, be afraid not to say anything. And so we eventually built a, an informal group of people that are, uh, I did, I do this brilliant Brooklyn accent, Brooklyn working class accent. They said, Ken, don't ever do that again. <laughs> okay, I won't. How to break a stereotype? Proximity. There's only one way to break a, a stereotype. It's proximity. Uh, there's a, a woman who is a pastor in Seattle, and uh, she was part of the uh, crowd of people uh, in the church world, and the, I don't know if it's a majority or minority, but uh, a sizable crowd in the church world that um, really uh, is unkind in their speech and their attitude towards people of uh, LGBTQ um, uh, lifestyle. Um, and then her daughter said, Mom, I'm a lesbian, and here is my soon-to-be wife. Um, it took an adjustment on her part, and now she's a champion of folks who have a non-standard sexuality. But it was only through proximity. The theory of it couldn't get into her brain, but the reality of it got into her brain. So we need to be around. Um, we need to be around people who are different from us. I have a friend who is bipolar, and when he's manic, he's manic. And when he is not manic, he is not manic. He's laying on the floor uh, wanting to die. Um, he's a beautiful man. He's my friend, and he'll always be my friend. Um, there's a book called uh, The Man in the Monster. Uh, if you, if you want to read some really, really hard reading, it is how this woman, a journalist, a uh, Christian journalist, how she, how she inter, interconnected with a serial killer whose crimes were beyond anything imaginable, in my estimation. And she grew to love this guy. Even when he called from prison, he, uh, she would let her daughter talk to him. Now, Obviously, she didn't wander out of the room when that happened, 
but what she did is she allowed her heart to connect with this guy and see the man in the monster. There's monsters walking around in Portland all the time, in our opinion, and yet there's a man or a woman or a, a, a person uh, inside that monster. And as it turns out, they may not be as monstrous as we think. Okay. Consequences just ahead. 1980, Ronald Reagan uh, talked about a welfare queen and making all this money, huge amounts of money on welfare. And he galvanized the uh, Congress of the United States and uh, many of the people of the United States to assault people who were uh, receiving help from the government. Uh, and from that time on, uh, we, were, we were spending uh, huge amounts of money uh, to help people into housing. And, um, and from that time on, for the next several decades, that amount of money kept going down and down and down until we spent less than 10% in constant dollars on low-income housing than we did in 1980 before Ronald Reagan. Now, the unintended con consequence is uh, tents and good people living in dire circumstances because uh, we, just didn't, we just didn't understand what was going on. We're the only ones that can end the war. If you live indoors, if you have a house, if you have a car, for example, with all the windows in it, no cardboard in the windows, then you're what is known as a normal. We normals, uh, I've lived indoors for years, we normals are, are the only ones that can end the, the uh, economic war. Uh, and that's, we have to learn how to give and care and uh, advocate on their half, on behalf. Okay, re-traumatization. Um, sometimes, because if I tell my story, there, there is somebody who uh, wants to cure me. They know that, I say, look, okay, I'm telling you my story, but I, I don't want to be cured. Um, I, just, I just want to tell you my story as a matter of connection. So I'll be in a room this size. Somebody will come up uh, afterwards, and they will give me the silver bullet. It's going to shoot right into my heart, and it'd be, I'm going to be well. Um, and then some people do the, uh, the, the uh, gold standard, or the gold bullet. And then there's the platinum bullet. And this is the platinum bullet. Ken, God loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much that uh, he sent his only son uh, to die on the cross on your behalf. And you're calling him a liar? Uh, at which point I say, thank you, I'm cured. Oh, look at the time, I've got an appointment, have to run, see. Um, I, think, I think we can, uh, here, I have been carefully treated, kindly treated, I've listened to you uh, kindly treat one another, uh, I've, I've seen a beauty in this place that's just absolutely astounding to me and wonderful. 
uh, I once said to a young woman who was contemplating suicide, let go and let God. And she said, I have a sucking wound. Do you know what a sucking wound is? When you, when you are injured to the point that the blood begins to come into your lungs with every breath. Every time you inhale, blood goes into your lungs. She said, that's what I'm happy, having right now. And you tried to put a Band-Aid on it. Um, I managed to re-traumatize her quite well. Relationship versus information. We are, we, meaning the church world, we are a, an informational body. We go out and we give information. That's what we do. If we're an evangelist, if we're a missionary, something like that, we go out and give information. And the, and the, the earth is crying out, I just want someone to want me. That's all I want. I want someone to like me. I want someone to care. Love versus like. Jesus and Peter got into a gun battle. Jesus said, do you love me with this grand holy love that only comes from God? And Peter said, yes, I love you, and I embrace you, and when I see you, my heart pounds with, with this, this like for you. And, and Jesus again said, do you love me with this grand uh, love that only comes from heaven? And Peter said, uh, by now Peter is bewildered, he's confused. He said, the only thing I know about you is when I see you, my heart pounds, and I just want to embrace you. I want to be around you. I want to talk with you and, and hear what you have to say and, and have you hear what I have to say. And Jesus asked again, and he said, Peter, does your heart pound when you see me? Do you care? Do you like me? And Peter said, you know I do. And so the God of the universe in human form, that's our theology, I believe, the God of the universe in human form, a few days before he ended up on the cross, changed his stance um, because somebody taught him something new. I know that might be theologically shaky, but the fact is that I believe that the, the new the new thing that God wanted to do on this earth was for us to embrace each other and like each other rather than carefully um, do things good for each other. Do we, do we protect established norms or do we give mercy? Okay, so here's something that is absolutely amazing to me. Um, Established norms, we, ha we know the established norms of the, of the Christian church world. Um, do they include mercy? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But there's a, there is a possibility that we could be dispensers of mercy. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I don't want your sacrifice, I don't want your rules and your regulations, but I want you to extend mercy to your fellow human beings. Uh, and that was a gunfight that Jesus won, and he didn't change. So, where does this all lead? Uncommon sense. It's a, on the, it would be on your left, a group of people uh, saluting as they march by in ranks and ranks and ranks. 
And then there's somebody being really, really uncommon. Portland, Oregon is an uncommon city full of uncommon people, and we get to be uncommon around them. It's been 1,700 years that being uh, common and normal, it's been 1,700 years uh, since uh, Constantine took over the church world, um, and now we have an opportunity in this time, in this place, in this city, in this locale, uh, to do something uncommon. There's a lot of thinking to do. There's a lot of dreaming to do. Uh, I, I know there are many people that, uh, <coughs> particularly from the outside, that are saying, this is what you need to do. This is what you have to do. And it all sounds like something I've heard before. But in this place, I'm beginning to hear things that I haven't heard before. And I think that's awesome. I love you, folks. Thank you for letting me be here. Thank you, Ken. Um, you challenge my fierce individualism that's been handed to me by our culture. Uh, you present me with an option of vulnerability, which I hate <laughs> and am terrified of. Um, you draw us to a place of contemplating Something that really uh, has stuck with me, um, those of you who've journeyed with us for a while, we, we usually just teach through books of the Bible on our standard Sundays, and uh, last year we were moving through the book of James, and um, one thing that was really striking to me uh, at the end of the book of James was uh, there was this challenge uh, from Pastor James to be hospitable. That's the English word, right? Be, be a person of hospi uh, hospitality, which we often think of as, you know, wonderful things, letting people be in our home, food, all this kind of thing. But, um, you know, being the nerd that some of us are, we look at the Greek text with this stuff, and what was so striking to me was that word, and many of you will remember this, because this has stuck with us, we've had many conversations around this, that word that gets translated uh, hospitality um, is an antidote to what we would call xenophobia, right? The xenophobia at its base level, the idea is the dislike or the, the hatred of someone other, that they're other in class or they're other economically or they're other religiously or they're other racially or gender or sexuality, right? The, that we have this fear of them that generally leads us to uh, dislike and even hatred. And the, that word in Greek is completely counter. Instead of xenophobia, it's the word xenophilia, right? And some of you, yeah, love of, love of the other, love of stranger. That's, that's, the, that's the antidote to what we experience. And so I hope what we do here at the Groves during this time is we just take a song's worth of time to just reflect, respond, pray, uh, whatever it is you need to do to let some of this sink. That's, that's our hope anyway, is that we take some time and some of these ideas sink into us that we can walk out with them. Um, and so that's my hope, that, that you take some of this rich, rich theology that Ken is sharing with us and, and, and latch on to something uh, this week about that. Let, 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 that, let that maybe challenge your individualism if you struggle with that the way I do. 
Maybe it opens up your vulnerability. Maybe it's a chance for you to say, how do I, how do I become more loving of others? How do I let my fear and, and that stuff drop? And so we're just going to take a moment uh, and play some music, and then we'll close as we normally do, uh, reading a scripture that we've chosen to read together throughout the year.